Welcome to Traumaturgy, Season 4, Episode 3. Today's episode focuses on uh, the current climate crisis, and we interview two theater artists who are tackling uh, this issue head-on in their work. First, you will meet British playwright Dawn King. Uh, If you do not know her, you are about to, as her new play, The Trials, opens at the Donmar Warehouse in London on August 12th. It was also a finalist for the Susan Smith Blackburn Prize. In addition to her work on The Trials, she's currently working on a radical reinterpretation of The Cherry Orchard from the perspective of the trees for director Katie Mitchell. And she's working on the feature film Pig Child and adapting her play Foxfinder for the screen. I hope you enjoy Loretta's and my conversation with playwright Don King. It's, um, It's a little crazy that we're having this conversation now today with everything that's happening in Europe. Um, with with the with the heat there. Yeah, it's it's really insane. Um, I've been I've been hiding inside the theatre um, all day, and today's our second day of rehearsal, and it's the hottest day ever. It's the hottest day ever here. So, um, yeah, it, it it and going outside, it really it really feels. It doesn't feel like a summer's day. It feels like you have to hide from this heat. You don't go out in it. That's how it feels. And it, and it's it's really terrifying. Um. So welcome, Don, uh, to Traumaturgy. We appreciate you taking the time. You said today is the second day of rehearsals for the trials. Yeah, I'm in the stage management office, which is one of the air-conditioned rooms um, in the building. Um, so they've been kind to kind of evacuate so that I can be in here. We put a sign up on the door saying that we're doing a podcast. So um, yeah, and it's the second day of rehearsals on the trials. Um, and it's also the hottest day ever um, in in the UK. So it feels quite strange because we're starting this project, which is about um, a climate emergency and young people. Um, and yesterday was the first day of rehearsal and it was the first ever red heat warning. Um, so it really, it really feels like this project is the, it's the absolutely right project to be working on right now. Um, I mean, it's kind of a bit depressing to feel that, that I'm, I mean, to feel like, oh, this, I was right, you know, I mean, I'm not the only person obviously that's aware that climate change is real and it's really happening, but, um, it's, it's a weird sort of synchronicity that we're starting right now in this week. So, yeah. Yeah, I would say that often theater, right, tends to be reactive. Um, something happens and then people, um, you know, write plays or work on projects about, you know, something that's happening or they pull a classic play that, um, you know, might, um, you know, like Enemy of the People that might speak to to the moment. Um, but your, yes, your play feels really of the moment. Um, Will you talk a little bit about your impetus to start writing it? Because it has, you know, your play has been around for a few years. Um, you know, it's not like you wrote it yesterday. So will you talk about what what concerns led you to, to start writing this? Yeah, I mean, I wrote it in 2020. Um, and it was, it was 
first produced in Germany in January of this year and um, there was a delay because of because of COVID obviously and um, I'm now working on it that was in German and now I'm working on it here and I've done some revisions to the script so this is this is kind of very much a you know I mean it's not a new ver- it's not a new play but it's it's a revised version it's an Eng- it's a kind of English language premiere um, and the impetus for the play came from uh, I guess probably 2018 or maybe 2019 I was sitting at home I was writing some poetry and I was booking some flights to go to New York because I was going to be on a writer's residency in New York and it was the first day of the um, the first Friday school strike for climate um, which I don't, I don't know if the, that's the kind of um, movement that was started by Greta Thunberg um, where school school kids go out of school on Friday in, to strike about the climate emergency um, and I'd, I'd known that it was going to happen in, in, in England and I decided that I would go down to support the young people, but I'd, I'd kind of forgotten. So I was at home kind of booking these flights and writing poetry. And I thought to myself, you know, you think you're so green and you're such a kind of good person, but you're just as bad as everybody else. And in the future, um, it will be the people like you that are sort of held to account for their behaviour. And that was kind of like a little thing that I thought to myself. It was like, it was like me thinking how people would think, how, how the next generation might view me in the future. Um, and then I was talking to a friend of mine about it and I said, you know, that this is a good idea for a play. And that's, that's basically where the impetus to write the play came from. So um, the play is set sort of about 18, 20 years in the future and there's a radical green government in charge and the younger generation are putting the older generation, i.e. kind of us, um, on trial over their action or inaction um, over the climate emergency and there's a jury of young people so a jury of teenagers 12 to 17 talk about the adult defendants and decide if the way they lived was justifiable or not um, so we've got um, 12 incredible um, young people that are rehearsing in the room just part through the wall um, and that's that's the kind of yeah that's where the play came from Don, you mentioned that its premiere was in Germany and the original language was German. And so you wrote the original script in German? No, I wrote the original script in, in English, but okay. I had a translator. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. A very so, lovely translator who worked with me. It strikes me that, you know, that premiere occurs in a country that, you know, has infamous trials associated with it already. Um, what what context did that add for your for, for that performance and and what are you carrying uh, from that into this production? So we had a, we had a lot of conversations um, about about that about about you know the Nuremberg trials um, and obviously it like a lot so I had a dramaturg working with me and I had the director and you know the, everyone from the theatre so we had lots of conversations about it um and that was really really interesting because I I think that actually I mean I don't know because we've had loads of conversations about it in Germany and then here it it feels like it's a slightly different thing however I was ve- I was very happy and grateful to kind of have the that aspect of it kind of very thoroughly examined by people who for whom it's a much kind of i mean it's a it's a very contentious kind of subject so you know i i felt like it's really good to have this um talk you know have these people that are kind of investigating this text um it was it was great i i feel like 
I feel I feel like particularly on this project that there have been so many incredible minds that have lent their brain power into the project at various stages. Um, so that's been really helpful um, as I've tried to kind of figure my way through um, all of these arguments about um, about uh, action or inaction over the climate emergency. Um, and obviously the play is not just that, it sounds very dry, it's actually a lot about the young people and their, and their relationships and the way they feel and the, the traumas that they're carrying, my young characters. Um, and hope, it's also about hope. It has stuff in it about vegan ice cream, it's not all depressing. <laughs> You know, as a as a college professor, right, Loretta and I um, are college professors as well. And um, so, yes, the the young people, right, the you know, currently the the Gen Z um, or what have you, and and they are a really smart, concerned generation um, that I have had to um, learn how to talk to and interact with and teach um, because it's all different for them. Um, you talk about as a playwright um, writing for that generation um, when um, you're you know a tiny bit older than them um, with you know how to find you know their their authentic voice. Yeah I mean so I mean so in terms of writing for younger characters I think that I particularly because this play is set in the future, so I'm obviously not trying to use the way that young people speak now because that would be out of date. And so what I've actually tried to do is to just keep it quite it's quite it's quite simple the way that it's written. And I haven't tried to create too much in the way of like future young person vernacular, if that makes sense. Um, and in, in terms of it as a play, it, I, I see it as being a play for audiences of all ages. Not, it, it's not a kind of play for young, a younger audience. But I have, I have written plays which are for young people to perform, and also for for, for more for younger audiences to come to. Um, and I have another play coming up, like straight after this one, um, called Addictive Beat, which is um, a play about two young musicians. And that one, we're kind of aiming at an audience of kind of like late teens kind of early to mid 20s um and that's that's really interesting as well i suppose that i guess i just i'm just kind of i'm i, I suppose i'm always kind of in some way writing for myself and the audience so I, I think i do sort of like try to just mentally cast myself back through the years <laughs> um, but yeah i'm not i'm not i'm not that old but yeah and i and i also teach i also teach young people and i teach teenagers and young people of all ages as well so i think that's really helpful um i teach young people writing and i get to read the plays that they write so you know re reading a bunch of plays that like 13 and 14 and 15 year olds have written about what they think is interesting what they care about is is really fascinating because i get to see that changing every year like this is what they think is really important this year you know so i think that's really helpful Dawn, when Suzanne and I were preparing for today, she shared um, your website with me. And so I had a chance to review some of your prior projects and, you know, climate and the environment and relationship between humans and non-humans is such a theme throughout your work. And, and as you opened us today with, you know, the red 
heat warning and the hottest day ever. This may seem um, kind of like a ridiculous question, but what is it that draws you to these themes and keeps you in those spaces in your storytelling? Yeah, it's... uh, I mean, I suppose that I've always been interested in the future and what I think human life is going to be like. And I think when you're thinking about that, you obviously do think about things like artificial intelligence and climate and nature and humans and nature. And obviously when you do one project, then maybe somebody comes to you and says, are you interested in this? And then there's there's an, there's an element of that in it. But I definitely feel like with this project, I mean, I've had a kind of, I've had this sort of involvement with activism and the kind of climate movement for for a while and i i was i was married and my ex-husband is now like my ex-husband worked for greenpeace so i had like this very strong kind of like a what you know i had this kind of eyes eyes into this thing that was going on and um and obviously i went on lots of protests and, and all of that stuff um and I'm, i also am from the countryside and i feel like my relationship with nature is really 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 important to me um i'm not a native londoner and i need to go into the into the woods very frequently where i sort of feel like i'm going mad um, and I feel like I feel like a project that was very much like really about the the climate emergency was kind of on the cards for a while. And I was almost like holding off because I was like, if I actually really do a project about this, it's going to change everything for, for me forever because I'll never be able to kind of like pretend that I haven't written this project. So um, but I also because I also written a couple of things that were kind of set in future worlds in different ways. So it's like I've been practicing my future world writing skills and then that led me into the space of being able to write this this play which feels like it's it feels like it's the future may actually be but i hope it's not you know it's very much like we aren't in that in this space yet these things aren't happening yet let's let's hope that they don't let's act against this kind of future happening um, i'm um I think it was season two, I might be wrong, we were able to speak with Ashlyn Sparrow, who directs the Weston Family Game Lab at the University of Chicago. And um, she was sharing with us in that conversation um, a production that blended um, an actor improvising in response to the audience, and it was was environment-related. But it was intended to be you know, not a play, but a game performance. And I see in some of your work going into VR that, um, you know, you're navigating these different types of performance spaces. Is is there something you can share with us um, about that? And, and particularly uh, how you navigate that maybe emotionally, ethically, you know, thinking about climate change and right technology. And I don't know how much of that kind of filters into your decision-making about projects, but I'm curious about sort of how you've entered that VR space and what it means for you and your work. I mean, so the, 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 the less conventional stuff that I've done, some of that stuff has been, has been kind of in experimental stages that have then not actually happened. But um, I have done projects which which you wouldn't really say are it's not a play. You know, I did I did a, a project called Dystopia Nine Eight Seven, which was 
like a kind of immersive dystopian rave of the future with Skepta, who's this um, kind of musician and, and artist here. And um, uh, that was like, a, we did it, it was like a kind of rave in these big abandoned kind of railway tunnels in Manchester. And we had a thousand people a night come and we had actors that were kind of in character. And the idea was that you were going to a rave in the future. And so we worked with the actors to create characters for them and, and the stories and things that they would do in the space. Um, and then there was a kind of narrative and storyline and there was like this kind of poetry that I'd written that was kind of like put throughout the space and um, we had this technology that was kind of doing all of this crazy stuff. We had this kind of robot and and then at the end it kind of built up to this big performance um, and that was really, it was, re it was really, really interesting and I suppose that what I think about, what I think about that kind of work and all of the stuff that I've done and, and really all of my work really I mean it's it's storytelling and I've I've come to think a lot more about myself as a storyteller and I use mostly theater I mean I use theater and I also use film because I also am writing screenplays as well um but there are obviously other forms too and I think that's really it's really exciting to me and like the the the, the having a bunch of people in a space and having them like like them physically moving through a space and then the things that they hear and the things that they see that's that can be storytelling obvious of course obviously just like having people sitting down looking at a particular space be that like in three dimensions or in, in two dimensions if it's um whatever it is so um i find that interesting like the concept of a party what's the story of this party what's the story that we're telling everybody Yeah, I was really thinking about that sort of as well, too, looking at um, I mean, your website and the different types of projects was that um, your work is theatrical, right? Like in in all those different ways, whether it's, you know, um, whether you're creating um, a party, a rave, whether you are um, having sort of, um, you know, young actors being a jury. Um, you know, and then of course it said on your on your website that um, you know your um, adaptation of the cherry orchard, you know, mm. from the point of view of the trees, you know. So again, like I, um, there's nothing wrong with a play where you go and you sit and you watch. Like that's that's cool too, um, but the the plays that really um, excite me and I think excite younger people are ones that have a little bit more theatricality to them um so I, I wondered if you would talk a little bit about exactly that how you are thinking about um the structure of your work and um and engagement with these issues i guess i feel like there are different there are different ways to engage with the climate emergency in your work you can obviously engage with it very directly as in it's the subject of the the, the work it's the, it's the subject it's the thing that people talk about or that's really presently there um and that's that's very much one of the things that the trials is that it's, it's very much about the kind of emergency but you can also have something that's kind of that isn't doesn't have that as a subject but is also but is sort of still about it or is still engage, engaging with it in some way so for example with a project like addictive beat which is not overtly about the climate emergency it's about young people it's about two young musicians who are kind of like early 20s they're young people they're living in the world now so obviously they're living in this world now so the the climate emergency is part of their lives so psychologically i'm thinking about these characters and how they're being affected by the world that we live that we're living in and it, it's kind of there as a sort of like unspoken bedrock 
in the characters' lives. So it's still there. Um, and then with the um, with the cherry orchard project, that's about kind of trying to part of part of what that project is is about trying to change the focus so that we're not really focusing on the human story we're focusing on the nature story of the cherry orchard and we're doing an experiment with this project to see how that's going to work um and how that's going to work um uh, and you probably won't hear that much of the actual play um as part of that as part of that experience you know you're probably going to hear um things like um the sun is coming up and it's the dawn chorus and the birds are singing and that's like one of the major events that happens in act one mm -hmm. um yeah so I, f I feel like there's a shift which is about for me it feels like all of my work going forward has an awareness of the climate emergency even if it even if i'm not really writing about it very directly it's still going to be there in some way because how could it not be I mean, like I'm an artist, like living and writing in this world, it, it's going to be there somehow. It's always going to be there. And, and also there's also things about how is a project being made, you know, and those are very valid experiments to do as well, to be asking, well, how are we making this? Can we make, can we make this in a more eco-conscious way? Don, in Reflecting on what you just shared, I'm struck by writers whose work in America focuses on race and racism and um, anti-racist work. And quite often uh, those writers or those performers will reflect on the cost of the work for them and yet also simultaneously reflect on the way in which it renews or fills them um, because they live in the world and the bodies that they have and with the awareness that they have. And you shared earlier that um, you know, there was a holding back for you in this project initially of like, well, once it's out, it's out and I, you know, my life will be changed and my work will be changed because I will um, I don't want to read too much into what you're saying, but <laughs> it, it, I'm curious for you, you know, how you balance that pouring out and that opening up that you need to do to execute this kind of work and to really live fully aware with the, the themes of the work that you're doing and your need to be a simple human who like doesn't always have constant awareness <laughs> operating. How do you, how do you manage that? Yeah, I mean, so sometimes I feel like I can be absorbing things, I can be reading things, and I can be watching the news and looking at news sources. And sometimes I have to not do that for, for a little while. Because the, the past couple of days here, I mean, I'm sure I, I'm sure kind of in lots of places, because you know, the new the climate related work news is very bad, right now, kind of everywhere. And the last couple of days, it's been very there's been a lot here and I've been sort of reading because I feel like it's my responsibility to, to do that. But um, also, I don't have all I don't have all the answers. I'm not I'm not like a perfect. I mean, that was obviously part of the impetus to write the Charles. I don't have the I'm, I'm asking myself these questions and I don't have the answers and I'm definitely not perfect. And I definitely am not like a kind of I don't know, some kind of angel that's able to kind of live without burning any any fossil fuels. Um, but um, 
I, I feel like it's really important for us uh, so to do, to do what, what you can with what you have and it might be that you feel like actually you don't have any energy right now and so you kind of need to be in like a sort of more of a kind of you know protected zone where you're not really trying not to absorb too much stuff so that you can kind of like you know make make something or come out fighting or whatever it is so I think I mean we we have as well some people here on this show who are kind of like supporting us um I'm also supporting the young people with um potential climate anxiety that might be coming up and you know that is a real thing I think that if, if you if you 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 have to kind of so knowing something is one thing but really believing it is kind of a slightly different thing and I think there was a point where I was like writing this writing this project was part of my process of actually coming to believe it and to kind of be like this is real I'm really I'm actually doing this I'm actually writing this and I'm never going to be able to have not written it and you know it's it, it's it's going to change it's going to change things and so yeah it's um it's not I, I suppose I would say it's not always easy it's not easy it's not easy it's, it's not easy to kind of to, to do this work and obviously we have to take really good care of our mental health because if you don't have that you can't make any work Don's play The Trials runs at the Don Mar Warehouse from August 12th through August 27th this summer. Performance times are evenings, Monday through Saturday at 7.30 p.m. and matinees on Thursday and Saturday at 2.30 p.m. There are also 10-pound tickets for audiences under 30 years old. And on Wednesday, August 17th, there is a special young and free performance with free tickets for uh, folks under 26 years old available to book. So go to the Donmar Warehouse uh, website to learn more about um, everything The Trials. I didn't give away any of the spoilers about what happens, which was very important. <laughs> so um, that's good. I definitely feel like um, I feel like plays are more fun if you come and you don't know mm -hmm. everything that's going to happen in the play. So we're trying to retain a little bit of mystery about it. Yeah, I love that. I um, I went to New York and I saw Fat Ham this weekend, and um, and I did not know, and I will just leave it at that. I did not know what was going to happen, and yes, um, there is such, I think, joy. There can be joy in surprise. And, um, and hopefully, like you said, um, while this is a serious subject matter, there is hope in, in the work. So, um, so that's, that's a reason to go and experience it. Because um, I think we yeah. all need, we all need a little hope right now. Yeah. And I think as well that even though it's, it is hard, it is difficult. And I know that people, people are scared. We're all scared. But also it's really, it's really important not to kind of give in to the feeling of hopelessness because that's actually what the big fossil fuel companies and the super polluters and the kind of, you know, the, the, the people that are in power, that's what they want is for us to kind of give up. And, you know, we, we can make change um, and we can make the, not, the, not just the future, but we can change the, pre the present, you know. Um, and, and so don't give way to that feeling of hopelessness. Um, like that there, there is hope and that's what I sort of, that's one of the reasons that I'm kind of making this work, you know. Um, 
because it's better to kind of act like there's it's better to act like there's hope and believe like there's hope because isn't that going to be more fun i'm i'm very interested in in dystopia and utopia and i think that that those things are both potentially involved in the climate emergency and futures that you can imagine you know the great honor of speaking with Deborah Eleazar um, about the uh, climate crisis and how it affected her directly um, because of um, surviving uh, California wildfire, um, which she will talk about. Um, She uh, amplifies the climate crisis through her lived experience and supports healing by creating experiences that explore nature and community ritual. Um, She's a white Middle Eastern theater maker, cultural activist, and um, from 2011 to 2022, she was the artistic director of Fool's Fury Theater. you will learn a lot about Deborah in um, in our talk. She is, and she does talk about this, she is seated outside um, on her land. And so sometimes um, the internet connection is a little spotty, um, but stick with the conversation. Uh, she has a lot of really fascinating things to say about um, about climate and about making theater um Uh, that really explores climate. I hope you enjoy. Um, Of course, we met virtually um, doing the uh, six, the six viewpoints workshop with Wendell Beavers. Um, How much, I mean, did you know Wendell? How much viewpoints had you, had you done before that, that workshop? Yeah. Viewpoints has been a huge uh, foundational piece for my work since 1994 when the city company came and did their first workshop in San Francisco produced by the Modus Ensemble, which doesn't exist anymore. And they came to a theater space called Somarts and we we did a three-hour one-day workshop and it kind of changed my life. Like I was, I was, I was, I had a dance theater company at that time. And I sort of went to dance uh, after my theater degree because dancers were speaking more than Mm. actors were moving. And I really needed that interdisciplinary. I didn't see a a line between those things. And dancers were just moving more quickly in the 90s in the San Francisco Bay Area like moving into bleeding those lines faster than theater was. Mm-hmm. So that's what I, um, that took me into this great love of like, oh, these are theater folks who are really understand how to use the body and, and do an embodied practice. Suzuki method of actor training and the viewpoints. And that took me uh, that into eventually leaving my company, Eclipse Dance Theater as the co-artistic director and moving into Fool's Fury. Mm. And, um, we started being the company that produced uh, the workshops in the Bay Area for, for for the city company. And then eventually, as I moved more deeply into the work, um, uh, finding and meeting Mary Overly and then getting um, 
producing her workshops outside of NYU. So we were the company that first produced her workshops in New York and San Francisco, uh, and also uh, did her book launch, um, and and really became good friends. And I feel that that Mary was a mentor to me. So um, I I I'm I just I'm so grateful for the work of the city company and everything that they have done over the years, the number of instructors that have come to the Bay um, and uh, how they've influenced our work in the Bay Area. And then um, and then Mary and personally having a relationship with Mary meant a lot to me. So my work with Wendell uh, came through that lineage mm -hmm. and I have been trying to get Wendell to come to the Bay to produce a workshop on site on my retreat center for some years. And now since the fire, you know, we'll just, it'll be a little bit longer, probably a lot longer, but, but yeah, it's still like in my wheelhouse. Like basically I didn't do a grad degree because I realized I could just bring the artists and master teachers that I wanted to train with and work with to the Bay Area and create the kind of program or training that I wanted. And uh, that was kind of my grad program in that way. So mm -hmm. so I still think of Wendell as part of that program too, even though I'm 53. <laughs> I'm still like producing, bringing artists to me who I think will benefit my work and, and by extension, the work of the, the folks around me. Yeah, I love that. I have I have such a similar story. Only it was two thousand and four when I when I met Anne and and did my first three hour workshop. Um, so it's mm. it's so funny. Um, so, of course, um, because of your relationship, uh, with Mary and Wendell, Wendell asked you to speak, um, at at the Six Viewpoints um workshop, and and you spoke so passionately about climate change and how that is affecting our work as theater artists. And so, um, so of course, that's why I've asked you today to talk a little bit about that. So I wondered um, if you would just talk about, I guess, um, you know, the, the beginnings of your realization of um, how this is all connected and, um, and yeah, just, you know, what sort of, what sort of got you on this track of, thinking about um, climate and the land and us as theater artists and how we all work together. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so I've been a member of Fool's Fury since 2005 and, and working with, I worked with the founder, Ben Yom, since 1999. And through this entire time, we were looking for a space in San Francisco that we could call our own. We were a nomadic theater company and, um, and that it just didn't happen at, at once. At one time it was going to be New York and we looked at venues in San Francisco and it just never was going to happen. And eventually Ben moved away to San Diego. So location and region and, you know, became this issue. And though we are San Francisco based, my husband and I, really decided we're going to create this community space and we found a 33 acre property in sonoma county we sort of creatively found the resources to make it happen and um 
purchased this property in 2016 and um, 33 acres in the Redwoods mixed forest um, Redwoods Madrone for Manzanita um, four different kinds of oaks and so beautiful and you couldn't see your neighbors and it was amazing and we're like this is where a retreat can can happen and this is what 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 will be the antidote is we'll bring urban dwellers artist makers into nature um so they can create their own workshops have their own residencies we can do work our work full sphere this kind of thing and really so so it begins with nature and begins with the alignment with nature and kind of how one is changed by by being in the presence of the natural environment. Um, as I'm speaking to you, I'm sitting on the land in front of my RV and I'm looking at like what trees remain and the um, the burnt out hills across from me. And it's it's a very different place to be um, and live at this time. So in, we did that. We started creating workshops and many people from the Bay Area came and they were nourished, you know, by this idea of community and what it means to live together, eat together, you know, sleep on the same land together and make work together. And um, everything from drum workshops to African Haitian workshops to theater companies, word for word, uh, Fool's Fury, of course. Um, Ragged Wing, a lot of lo local folks, you know, and we also had Umo Ensemble here um, from from Washington. And anyway, so we we then um, were a part of the Northern California wildfire narrative, and our we were evacuated for the third time on in August eighteenth, twenty twenty. And thought, okay, well, this is just another evacuation, and we'll leave with our one suitcase. Within an hour, we left, and that was it. Everything burned down. The fire was so hot, it burned all the trees down, meaning even the redwood trees, which we know are very fire resilient. So... Um, suffering the different losses, first of our buildings, our dream, you know, of the sort of man-made, uh, what we've built up, but then also the actual uh, landscape of the environment. So that was like a second death, is understanding from our forester that 95% of the trees in this part of the forest had died, 156 homes and um, this particular fire called the Wallbridge fire uh, was a lightning strike. And we hadn't seen a fire for 80 years in our forest. So it was very dry, very ready to lots of fuel um, to, to burn. So <laughs> the only way that I know how to make to understand something when I don't have the, the narrative for it, the, the, is to make art out of it. <laughs> yeah. So as as you know, like many of us do, um, the suffering and the, the grieving and the kind of un figuring out how to move forward, my husband's entire wood shop, um, saws, furniture, yeah. he's a furniture designer and a scenic designer, uh, were gone, melted, literally, like became, there's a lot of melted ephemera uh, of metal. Mm. 
um, tin, tin roofs that became like curled structures, uh, shapes, and um, some found ephemera, including like um, heirloom teacups and things like that. We've saved all these things. Um, to us, they're a part of our resilience and beauty of what fire can do. And um, we're making a play and it's called Burning Wild. And it's really about um, the connection between what, how we grieve, what is loss, the actual details of this particular fire, and then also a fictional mythological address, if you will, of the land and the fire and the animals, you know, having voices, um, which I think is sort of an holistic assessment of, uh, and that kind of the only way I can describe it, you know, is conversing and we're in with the trees and the animals that started to come back and this land asking to turn to the land. You know, it's so interesting to me. Um, when I was 28, I think, um, 28 or 29, I can't remember. Um, the house I was living in, which was my grandparents' house, my grandparents had, had both passed and I was um, living in their house. And um, I went away for the weekend. And when I went away, the house caught fire. And um, so I, I hear, yeah, so like going away and coming back and, um, and the life that, you know, that I had made and my things no longer existed and, um, and having to figure out what was next. Um, so, I, you know, I, I, I just, I relate to what you're saying. And then, I mean, there's such on such a larger scale, of course, um, I, um, Fire is really um, an interesting <laughs> force and um, a disruptive force. Um, so I appreciate that you are, you know, sort of using your your theater skills and knowledge to tackle this this disrupt disruption that happened. Um, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, this, this sort of movement training and this, you know, obviously found objects and, you know, how that is moved in your, and living on the land still, um, how this is all working for you to, um, to make this new, new creation? Well, I'm so sorry about your loss with your fire. I think what you're saying about going away and then coming back and your whole life changing, uh, I really resonate with that. Um, yeah, I think that, and this was really happening before the fire too, with COVID and lockdown and how we make work and a racial reckoning. And yeah. what does it mean to be an artist? You know, and I, I really feel like, since 2016, honestly, since, you know, uh, you know, my liberal bubble was shattered and we had to face, you know, this president being 
quasi-elected and how we dealt with it in the world. Like I was like, what does it mean to be an artist right now? Well, I want to bridge divides, you know, perceived divides. I want to use personal narrative to to bridge divides so that we understand that at our heart, you know, we're very, very much alike rather than different. And, um, and so that's, that's in 2016, I started working on ad and being an Iraqi Jew and um, sort of my Middle Eastern identity and what that means and sort of everything that's loaded there. So this is all really building up. Now I feel like my work, um, is moving away from the idea of kind of investigating making art to just make cool things like that actually have um, the deeper intention of really healing, healing through the arts and, and that drawing community together and how we do that, deepening community partnerships. It's, this is the art that this is, half the art I'm interested in creating so that sure like there's writing that's coming out you know there's fictional writing there's characters the character a very sassy character of the fire who is feels incarcerated and shut down and suppressed and separated from you know sister land and and brother sky and all the other things because because man really fears fire so we might we need to, you know, isolate and incarcerate fire. Um, so this character is coming out and raging, you know, and she raged. Um, and kind of how we deal with our hubris. All of these things I think are about gathering and, and also giving people space to tell their stories. So oral histories, um, actually focusing on ritual, will be a part of the uh, interdisciplinary ways of accessing the piece about, you know, I think many of us are, are sort of working on breaking down the proscenium and kind of interrogating what, where theater happens. And, you know, this, this piece either wants to live on this land or, and or uh, will be in theaters, but will bring this ephemera will be, we're making sculptures of the burnt ephemera, you know, and we're um, combining that with fire dramaturgy, you know, um, that is regional. And, um, but also we have folks in the cohort um, who are generational um, uh, immigrants from Australia and and India, and who have their own fire narratives, their own relationship to air quality index, and their you know own relationship to to fire disaster. So how do we all gather? We you know uh, have Latinx uh, queer perspectives in the cast. This is very important so that we can really honor you know. Um, the legacy of California. Who are we? What is this land? What is the narrative on this land? You know, I'm a guest on Southern Pomo land. And what is that voice? What is that here history? So I think it's a, a structure, a container for me. Like that's, um, that's really uh, the deal is kind of like, how do I create a 
transformative structure, a container where people can feel their own journey and also have the agency to create uh, feel that they can respond to it in the ways that they want to respond to it. Maybe there's a wall where we're going to write on things. Maybe mm-hmm. there's, you know, there's going to be singing. There's going to be ritual. There's going to be a chance for people to just kind of talk to each other and ignore the artists who are performing or, you know, I mean, I think that there's all these ways that we can approve of how each of us is affected by climate disaster and, um, and make space for that. So, um, some of my writing, I talk about how my ego has fallen and, you know, I feel like I, um, you know, anti-fire, Tia Fuego has really taught me a lot, you know, about who's in charge, you know, and I think that I would like to exemplify that in how we create and execute, um, you know, public gathering. Yeah. I also feel like the the piece is is tiered in experience. There's the sort of performance at a certain date at a certain time level, mm-hmm. and then there's opportunities to walk on the land, which are other other times, you know, educational opportunities. And then there's farm to table like meals, mm-hmm. you know, like how how do we eat together? How do we relate to land? How do we uh, share some of the herbs, for example, in our garden because of the irrigation? They survived. And so how do we share that food and describe, like, use food as a narrative, you know, uh, so that the plants and the other beings on the land are telling the story and we're getting out of the way. You know, when a tree dies, one month after it dies, it's sprouting a new tree at the Mm. bottom of the base of that tree. And so... That is like the most inspiring thing, you know, it's carrying on all of this, all of this inherited ancestral knowledge that it has. Um, And it's, I mean, uh, some of the redwood trees after less than two years are already like eight feet tall. Like, they're just like, I know what to do. Get out of my way. I know how to grow, and I know how to heal this land. (laughs) I think humans are, take a lot more time. Yeah, you know, that's, that's so interesting. I was, you know, I was thinking about, um, you know, again, when, when the house I lived in caught fire, it it changed my life because I couldn't live Mm. there anymore. And I, you know, didn't have stuff and all the rest of it. And so I always said that it was um, that I chose to look at it as a positive, that it was the universe telling me it was time to move on and what have you. And what I hear is, you know, the regrowth, um, is is a really inspirational part of this and of course there's so much talk about climate change climate disaster and how um you know the world is coming to an end um and yet what i'm hearing from you is that if we sort of let the the earth do its thing that perhaps we might be okay (laughs) would you yeah I mean that's so beautiful but I'm reminded of like you know the great pause like what happened it's like um you know the rats took over in the London theaters Mm -hmm. and the the trees were we're happier and you know we all stopped driving and you know 
we could get out of the way and like and 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 focus on our interdependence you know instead of this idea that we're actually in charge hmm. which is false hmm. uh, <laughs> but so hard to let go of you know then then we we would actually be pursuing greater joy and this is all related of course i mean this is this is you know the cry of anti-racist platforms you know it's like we are all in this we're involved in an interdependent way you know your joy is my joy you know the tree's joy is my joy and if i see that myself as a part of the whole uh i i don't have to work so hard and i actually can be happier with less <laughs> i live in an rv right now which a lot of people do by choice you know and most mm-hmm. days i'm good with it and sometimes i just feel really victimized by it but um but i mean to be honest you know like yeah. it's not all like if i had a dime for everybody who was like oh you're you're rising from the phoenix from the ashes <laughs> and, you know it's kind of a funny metaphor because my husband is phoenician he is <laughs> lebanese like so like there was an extra added theme to that you know and as middle easterners we're quite you know our narrative is is all about displacement and moving on and being a nomad and but um it's you know i wanted to punch people uh, you know every other day when i heard it you know it's, it's a process you know it's it is harder for me to to accept and change this ginormous catastrophe and and also it was different for me than it was for my husband who has gone through as an immigrant mm-hmm. and a refugee from from Lebanon in the civil war like has gone through so much disaster and crisis that he was able to pivot much faster than i was mm-hmm. and for me i really understood what being a first generation you know on my dad's side meant is that he gave me all of the safety and all of the um love and and security so that i wouldn't have to go through um being challenged with what home is until this moment in my life like i understand that as a pro decades in the making and I feel Mm -hmm. like these really big choices which feel like so luxurious and feel so brave and kind of like oh that's like such a dream vacation or something like that um Mm -hmm. you know like bucket list I think those are some things where we're sort of our frame of mind is like now you know yeah you know it kind Mm -hmm. of like I think like climate disaster puts you in that frame of mind.